Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jonathan Lethem on his new book, Brooklyn Crime Novel. Jonathan Lethem is the best-selling author of 12 novels, including The Arrest, The Feral Detective, The Fortress of Solitude, and Motherless Brooklyn, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. He currently teaches creative writing at Pomona College in California, and today we're here to talk about Jonathan's latest novel, which is Brooklyn Crime Novel. Jonathan, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you so much for having me along. Tell us then, first of all, how you would describe this novel. Well, right. So there's one very easy point of reference for anyone interested in my work, which is that it's sort of a a return to the source code of my 20 years ago novel, The Fortress of Solitude, which was an autobiographical Bildungsroman, a coming-of-age story set in the neighborhood in Brooklyn in the 70s, where I, in fact, was a child. And this material is my legacy material in the same sense that, you know, anyone writing about the time and place of their, the mysteries of their origins has this one novel that they get to do, right? So I did it 20 years ago and for a long time was satisfied with that. And then very slowly, very gradually began to see the political and social and cultural reality of this zone, gentrifying Brooklyn at a time when New York City was a kind of a a raw, destroyed, you know, it was a bankrupt city, very, very uh, much a kind of a famously a a feral place where, you know, punk rock was beginning and, and hip hop was beginning, but the viability of the city as a place for middle class people to live was sort of everyone had thrown up their hands. And so at that moment, paradoxically, gentrification begins and people begin to move into these urban neighborhoods that are mostly not white. And in many cases, and this was true of mine, partly destroyed and slated to be destroyed. People are expecting them to be bulldozed and they begin saving the neighborhood house by house or as they see it, saving it. But of course, what they're doing is also bringing in the influence of a white cultural consensus and real estate uh, speculation. And so suddenly you have this other kind of catastrophe, which is capitalist in nature. And I realized I had immensely more to say about this, but that what I had to do in Brooklyn Crime Novel was take the little kid growing up off the page and write about it as though I didn't personally, you know, go through it, but instead try to do a panoramic view. And at the same time, I realized I was consumed with the situation of the children in this space. And so once I'd conceived this 
new, more kind of political, and I guess you'd say, do you know this term, psychogeographical index sure of this day. neighborhood? It's like what um, what people do in in essay films. You know, there's a great one. I'm forgetting the name of the filmmaker that I saw about London uh, called London. Uh, that, Patrick Patrick yes, Keeler. Right. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, I'm a I, big fan of all of this stuff. I Alan Moore's and Ian Sinclair's and Patrick yes. Keeler. Yeah, Ian Sinclair is is a model. I wanted to do a psychogeographical index of the place I'd come from, but at the same time, I realized I was helplessly embedded in my sympathies with the children. So ironically, <laughs> I go back to do this without the, you know, the Dickensian poor little white boy growing up thing. And I, I shatter that impulse into a thousand children. And I, I write about childhood again and again and again in this book. And it becomes my lens for doing the political work, the psychogeographical work that I was excited to do. That's a really interesting way to describe it then, because one of the, the obvious features of the book is the structure, which I want you to talk about. And the fact that it's, I mean, there are characters in it, but there are not characters how we would expect characters to be in a novel. Certain, they don't have names, for instance. Yes, I, I needed to banish their, uh, in some ways, banish their viability as characters so that you couldn't attach to them in the ordinary way. And instead, you'd have to quest around for something else to, to use to move through the book with. And I think it's, of course, for me, I think it's the investigation itself and the voice, because there's this cajoling kind of compact that the voice proposes between the reader and the book, which says, if you want to do this with me, it's going to be strange and we're going to look at a lot of unusual things, but I think there's something here. And so, you know, of course, that any dare like that is bound to throw some readers completely out of the book and they'll say, no, thanks. But if you engage with it, I don't think it's because you, you follow the characters and identify in the ordinary way that one does. And so to what extent, I mean, you mentioned that Fortress of Solitude was a, an autobiographical novel. To what extent does your growing up in Brooklyn also inform this one i mean there are you do you you know a version of yourself does appear every now and then as a character in this novel but to what extent does your own experience of brooklyn inform it well i would say my experience is in the book but even better is my access because i'm blessed with so many forms of continuity to old friends people in the neighborhood i grew up with and i delved in some ways with the intensity of a scholar or a researcher or a kind of a crank archivist. You know, I make fun of this impulse with a character known as the wheeze in the book, but I, I needed to displace my own sort of false authority, my bogus, my emotional authority over this material and find out how other people felt about it and, and collect their stories and smash them all into one giant pile and then redistribute them among these different fictional characters. So I think it's a very strange book for the people who actually know what my life was like because they see tiny glimmers of my experience distributed in this way, not centered in any one character, but they also, if they know some of the people, my, my own siblings are on this list, lots and lots of schoolmates, people I knew growing up. And, you know, the sources are kind of, there's a hidden oral historical project inside this book where I just, I identified excessively with anyone but myself. And then I tried to build the book out of that kind of wondering knowledge that comes, you know, from contemplating what's impossible to ever have, which is, you know, intimate experience that doesn't belong to you. I mean, if I may say so, the oral history aspect is not very well hidden. That's exactly what it feels like. It yeah. feels like a very minutely well-researched historical document about this area, seeing things that you could not have possibly known at the time when you were growing up there without latterly doing 
lots of research about the place. So tell me more about that. Tell me more about the actual research that went into the book. Well, I mean, one thing I should do, this is a very much a book that depends upon the, you know, the kindness of others is the, the phrase. And I, I have also this secret weapon, a great research genius named Brian Berger, who is writing what if he ever finishes, it will be kind of the ultimate underground history of all of Brooklyn, 20th century Brooklyn, uh, not just my neighborhood. But he is a kind of wizard of the uh, microfiche. And he's, along with satirizing myself and that character, the wheeze, there's bits of Brian Berger in there too. And I, you know, I used every advantage. I have so many remarkable people who I grew up with who gave testimony. And I was also lucky in a very weird, historically specific way in that I was doing this research during the lockdown which seemed at first like it was a disaster for my book because I thought I would have to go and sit with people all the time in order to do what I had in mind. But dialing them up on Zoom at the bleakest, most you know sensory deprivation phase of the early lockdown, pre-vaccination, became this remarkable, well, as, as with a sensory deprivation chamber, you're plunged into yourself. And I think a lot of people, especially maybe in my age cohort, you know, I, I'm going to turn 60 uh, next year. So I'm talking about mid late 50s when i was doing this the kids i went to school with and their siblings and you know acquaintances people i just found who i in many cases hadn't seen or heard of heard from or of in 35 or 45 years when i would connect with them on zoom and hit them with my questions we would go on these memory dives and it would often last 3 or 4 or even 5 hours of just this immersive self-wondering, I want to call it, because I think that's what the quarantine did for many of us was force us into ourselves. And we began to form these really, you know, unanswerable questions about who am I after all? And how did I, how did I become who I am? Because we were stopped. And so my book was the recipient of these confessions by people who were stopped in this way. And I triggered them with my questions. I opened up, it was like turning on a faucet and I would just let them pour their unreconciled feelings and and recollections out in my direction. It wasn't that they had grand theories, you know, and I, I mean, even the book, I think, is ultimately capsized by testimony. It, it can't cohere. It's too much to have any one thought about. So it wasn't about like figuring out everything, you know, this wasn't about solving a problem so much as it was just burrowing, tunneling like a bunch of termites deeper and deeper into the foundation of this experience. And you mentioned doing research during the pandemic on Zoom. And this is also a book that is a joy to read with Google Street View open next to you to research the actual places and see what they look like now. Um, the Central Street, there's obviously this book covers a, a whole swathe of um, Brooklyn and its various different boroughs. But Dean Street is the sort of central location. Tell us what that was like, what that street was like when you were growing up and something about how it's changed. Well, you know, I wrote about it quite romantically in many ways in Fortress of Solitude, and it it is romantic to me, and and I I'm in a permanent tension with that sense of nostalgia and loss of this space that you know on the face of it many of the descriptions sound conflictual and they, or uncomfortable. There were an enormous variety of classes and races and types of ways of living, ideas about living that were smashed together into this space because of its happenstance as a kind of crossroads in Brooklyn. It was not like some of the neighboring spaces defined by one community. You know, it wasn't an Italian neighborhood or an Irish neighborhood or just a black neighborhood or, you know, or just residential or just commercial or only poor. It had a kind of 
chaos of possibility in it. And so it was a place where in the 70s, when, you know, in the pre-AIDS era, there were a lot of queer people who'd moved in because it was inexpensive and there was a sort of informal community that had come. There were radicals who'd moved into empty brownstones and made communes out of them. And some of those were really, truly ideologically minded leftist enclaves. There were lots of poor people. There were lots of abandoned buildings. There were, of course, lots of artists. And uh, the, uh, the sense for the children, which was my perspective, was that we lived in a place where you never knew one block to the next, really one house to the next, what kind of life you might be encountering. And that was thrilling and always challenging and, and always kept your sense of, you know, in childhood, you're, you're both self-constructing and world-constructing. And those two projects, making a coherent world and making a, a, you know, maybe not coherent, but viable, let's say, just, you know, up on its feet kind of version of self that can walk out into places and present <laughs> and defend itself adequately. Uh, these were very genuinely challenging things to do in a space that was so radically under revision and negotiation itself. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Leatham and we're talking about his new novel, Brooklyn Crime Novel. And Jonathan, you finished up the first half. We were just talking again about gentrification of the area and you mentioned that Brooklyn was cheap and so artists and queer people and leftists and people that come to places looking for their own sort of community started to move in. And these people are often seen as the as the sort of vanguards of gentrification over an area. That story is the same in lots of parts of London. 
And so to what extent does, you mentioned also obviously the idea that people were moving, sort of middle classes were trying to move out of Manhattan into into Brooklyn as well. So to what extent does the sort of gentrification of Brooklyn happen sort of like organically, sort of holistically with those sort of groups of people? Or is there also some sort of, I don't know, I guess a sort of top-down, more official attempt to sort of... I don't know, what's the, what's the polite way of saying it? Sort of ethnically cleanse the borough. Right, to make it functional for, for middle-class people and safe. For white middle-class people. Absolutely, for white middle-class people. Well, so this, Neil, became a, a fixation of mine because you and I are using the word gentrification very comfortably as if it's a settled construct, which even now I think that that actually is worth pushing against. You know, it's one of those words that things nest underneath it and it's used in many different contexts, but it's familiar anyway, right? And, we, and also the process you just referred to, you know, that, that the artists or the the radicals are seen as the spearhead, the vanguard. Well, but this wasn't so clear then. In fact, this whole idea, this whole image that we're referring to was itself just barely glimpsed and barely understood. The term gentrification was coined by a British sociologist in 1964. It wasn't in common use conversationally outside of academic context until I would say from the evidence I've dug up the late 70s at the very earliest, really, it doesn't appear in the New York Times, for example, until the mid 80s. That's very recent, which is to say that the story that I'm telling of this neighborhood in the 60s and 70s and just coming into the 80s, its transformations didn't have a name. It wasn't a familiar process. It was a process that was just being measured and experienced in real time. And that's one of the subjects of this book was the invention of the idea of gentrification. Because the first, you know, you ask whether it was, there was a corresponding kind of top-down calculation. Well, actually, it was the opposite. The banks and the city were deeply opposed to this. They wanted to level these buildings because they saw them as really poor investments and the neighborhood as a great candidate for what was called urban renewal, which sounds like a positive term. Of course, now we know it as an almost explicitly racist project. Urban renewal is always the flattening of buildings that lower middle class black and brown people are living in and uh, developers or urban planners think could be usefully destroyed in favor of a sports stadium or a freeway or or a giant set of new shiny new you know upper middle class or middle upper white middle class homes so the people who first came to the neighborhood were actually fighting what they thought was the good fight and this is what we now can look back at and say oh well that's gentrification <laughs> that's a classic one right the the artists and and radicals come in and they want good coffee but what they do is they end up opening the door to real estate speculation but in fact this was so new as a sequence of experiences that the banks and the real estate people didn't grasp it yet. And they didn't play along for a long time. So there was this kind of lonely, brave, radical frontier, as it conceived itself, for a very sustained period. And when they found themselves recast as the villains in a story that they hadn't heroically saved a neighborhood, they'd actually gentrified it. This was immensely confusing to that class of people because they'd, they'd all been in various forms of mixed up good faith. They were almost none of them severely competent, calculating building flippers, real estate investors. You talked earlier about Brooklyn's relationship to Manhattan in the past when this process began. So how has that changed? What is its relation to Manhattan now? Well, I mean, Brooklyn has become a kind of fabulous, obnoxiously fabulous idea, right? I mean, it somewhere in the in the process of reading Paul Austin 
novels and watching Spike Lee movies. And, you know, possibly I'm a minor contributor to this problem myself. It became a t-shirt. It became an idea as uh, wearisome as any uh, smug hipster identity could be. And, and I've, I found myself as exhausted by it as <laughs> anyone much less complicit. But there is this deeply traditional anxiety about Brooklyn, right? It's, it used to be the, the sort of exile city or the lesser city or the immigrant city that was aspiring to graduate. You know, the, to leave there was to become complete, either by crossing the bridge and, and joining the great shining city, you know, on the island that was Manhattan, or by just, you know, for many immigrant communities to start in Brooklyn and then become an American of some other variety, you know, to move west or into the suburbs or find a, a much less kind of grubby, conflictual, you know, find a little more elbow room. So the fact that it's now this sort of destination, it still is burdened with these layers of real and also assumed, you know, chip on the shoulder, little engine that could, you know, whatever sort of underground or exile identity. And, you know, it's tremendously worth saying that the particular place I grew up and I'm writing about in this book has become very glossy. It's literally full of movie stars. Notting Hill might be the London comparison or something. But Brooklyn's enormous, and there are enormous swaths of it, vast regions that remain undescribed by white novelists <laughs> and, and ungentrified. I'll give it time. Well, that's the, the possibility. Yeah, I mean, it, it does expand. And, and it's become systematic. I mean, the thing you invoked earlier, that you know, one moment an impoverished artist rents an empty building for a studio and five minutes later, there's a coffee shop and another five minutes later, there's an enormous land grab. I mean, that's, that is systematic now. It's not slow motion the way it was in the 1960s and 70s. It's, um, it's massively accelerated and, and calculated. I mentioned that you you put yourself as a character in the novel, and that's you have fun with what you've just talked about—the idea that you personally, as a as a novelist that's written about Brooklyn, bears some responsibility for the um for the state of Brooklyn now. But you've talked about that already, so I'm going to ask instead: What about the fact that how do you feel about writing about Brooklyn now from exile? You're in LA, but you're still writing about Brooklyn. So how different is that to write about the place? from exile? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I should say I've always found exile a very healthy uh, method. And in fact, a lot of what I've done earlier with New York City was written from various proximities. I was living in Toronto as much as I was living in Brooklyn in the years I wrote Fortress of Solitude. And, um, and Motherless Brooklyn, the, the book that preceded it, was written while I nominally lived in the city. And I was, I was there quite a bit, but I was also running away to Maine and to writer's retreats to one called Yaddo specifically for a lot of the actual work on that book. I don't need to be away from New York City to write about it, but I don't seem to need to always be there. In fact, I seem to thrive on the push and pull. So I went back to work on this book some as well, but it, it's something about dreaming my way into a little, almost like a a microcosmic city that I keep in my head, you know, and, and or like a ship in a bottle. And that process is very uh, rich for me, the reconstruction of something that's not my immediate surrounding. I live in it whether I choose to or not. You know, it's, it's sort of always there. I'm both building the ship in the bottle and I'm a tiny little figure stuck to the deck with glue. I want to get you to, to read us a little bit to finish off. But before we do, 
I realise that we've been talking about Brooklyn quite a lot in the abstract and not necessarily in the book. So tell us something about, you mentioned that the book is concerned a lot with the depiction of children growing up in Brooklyn. And you talk about the children living on the streets and navigating something that you call the dance. So tell us what you mean by that. Right. Well, I mean, I obsessed over this in The Fortress of Solitude and I gave it a different name. I called it yoking, which was a street name. I adopted a local term. The origin of this is really in the fact that when I first as a teenager, went off to college or traveled when I ran away from college, and I would introduce myself as being from Brooklyn. At that time, the legend of the place was still all about crime. That was how people understood the idea of Brooklyn. And so I'd be asked, because it was such a cartoon of crime in the 70s, I'd be asked, have you ever been mugged? And I realized that it was a question that I ought to know the answer to, and I really didn't have one, because it was, the answer was either never if you thought of mugging as sort of the, like the way that Batman's parents get mugged, you know, with a man in a handkerchief, holds a gun up and says to a well-dressed couple, step into the alley, your money or your life. I'd never been mugged the way people, I think, picture it. But if the answer was meant to ask whether I'd ever uh, had things taken away from me on the street, it was, yeah, more times than I can count. And yet this experience existed in an unnameable space because it was transacted between teenagers. It ha always had multiple layers of familiarity and a kind of thinking about power and race baked into it. It was like a transaction that was also a theatrical occurrence and a form of joke or street art. <laughs> I didn't know what to call it. And so in this book, I resorted to calling it the dance. It still defies total description. I think it's it was in its nature to remain deeply mysterious, but it, it involved not strangeness, but familiarity, repetition, echoes, and often familiar faces, people you would have dealings with in some other way, people you knew from school or because they were the older sibling of someone you maybe hung out with. It finishes off then. Can I get you to read us a bit? Yes. Well, so uh, you've just asked about the dance. Why don't I read you a bit about that? The Dance, Part One. Let the antiquarian kid go now. Poor bastard. He's just one in a crowd. Watch him melt back into the streets. He is not we, and we is not I. It's time to make reckoning with the dance, that which may be the heart of the heart of the matter. The dance occurs between the white kids and the black kids, not that there aren't exceptions, but mainly. The dance occurs on the sidewalk. It might seem as simple as a transaction like that at a toll booth. By the conclusion of the transaction, what the white kid held in his pocket has been surrendered. As at a toll booth, this result is expected by both parties. So what's complicated about that? What makes it a dance? Such a simple moment, we could stare at it forever. The dance is a dance because no one can tell you in words. The dance is a dance because you have to do it to learn how to do it. The dance is a dance because it is an elastic ritual, one with blank spaces, intervals for improvisation, yet you can certainly get it wrong. The dance is a dance because it is embarrassing. The dance is a dance because it defies language. That is not to say that the scene of the dance is one bereft of language. We could write its lexicon, a phrase book in the tongue of the foreign country just beyond the door of one's house. Let me see it a second. To see a thing is to hold a thing. To hold a thing is to possess a thing and be free to exit with it in one's possession. What can never be taken from you is the thing unseen. But what is the thing unseen? So I've been talking to Jonathan Leatham. We've been talking about his new book, Brooklyn Crime Novel. 
which is out in the UK now from Atlantic. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, terrific pleasure. Really great to talk. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.